Just a reminder that Stats and Stories is running its data visualization contest to celebrate its 300th episode. You can grab data about the show to analyze and submit your entry at statsandstories.net slash contest. Your entry has to be there by June 30th. Researchers have spent decades trying to understand why some messages stick with audiences while others are ignored. They've experimented with humor and anger, trying to figure out what emotions fuel engagement. Narrative connection is increasingly seen as a conduit to persuasion, and that's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is John Chernev. Chernev is an Assistant Professor of Strategic Communication at Miami. Before academia, Chernev worked in Los Angeles on shows like Reba, Class of 3000, and Futurama. His research examines the persuasive power of narratives and satire, audience psychology, and media multitasking. John, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So how does someone go from working on shows, on a show like Futurama, to suddenly like running experiments on whether shows like Futurama can be persuasive? You know, it's, it's really weird. It's a, it's a strange career change. Um, but, you know, I think uh, one thing I read, I was actually kind of getting a little bit fed up of ho- with Hollywood, which mm-hmm. is just kind of, it can be tough. It can be, you know, there's, I think a lot of the stereotypes are true about just like the pressure, people being jerks, you know, it's also very fun and exciting. Um, but I, I really kind of thought what, I was looking into possible other careers as kind of a backup. And I actually thought to myself, I read something where people said that some of the most interesting people or the people who do the most interesting work are ones that have unusual career changes. And that often having a completely different background allows you to kind of have insight into something new. And so that kind of gave me some confidence in actually applying to grad school and wanting to kind of study communication. But really, my motivation was more that um, when I worked in Hollywood, I kind of felt like you have a big microphone uh, where you're basically communicating to a large body of people. Um, And I felt like a lot of writers who I met and who I knew along the way really wanted to kind of say something uh, purposeful, Hmm. meaningful, maybe showing a point of view or kind of, um, you know, not necessarily political, but just maybe something of social relevance or deeper than just like a kind of silly joke or, you know, whatever. So, but a lot of them either were not able to because of the kind of the structure of the programs they worked on. Like, you know, if you're writing, I don't know, for kind of a typical cop drama or something, you can't really go off on much of like an environmentalist rant necessarily or anything like that, you know. But also I found that it was very interesting because when people did try to approach something with some social significance in a kind of creative format, it, the effects were just kind of all over the place in terms of like how well it was received. And I, I didn't know anything about media effects at the time really, but just in terms of like there were some people who kind of had kind of projects where they would make kind of a very heartfelt uh, story often paying for it themselves. Sometimes big movie stars would even do this. Um, one example is John Cusack made a movie about that probably no one ever saw. 
and I'm blanking on the name of it, but basically it was looking at, um, it was kind of making fun of like war profiteering, but it failed miserably at the box office. And um, often people who are passionate about making these kinds of things don't necessarily know the best way to do it. And I was kind of curious about how to kind of engage an audience, but also maybe have a message of social relevance. Yeah, so, so you said you, you left Hollywood because of the pressure, uh, people being jerks, but it was kind of fun. <laughs> and it's so like, then you went and took an academic yeah, position, a right. tenure track. I don't know what I'm you doing. Know, yeah. I, I'm going, Just, huh? Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, you're right. I really didn't think that through very carefully. Yeah. No, I was yeah. kidding. No, no. Uh, uh, well, yeah, we're, no. Lucky to, you know, we're lucky to have you here. Yeah. So, so let, me, let me follow up on the, the point that you were just raising, which was sure. this idea that, 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 that there's often this desire to, through, mm-hmm. the, through these, this work, this creative act of, of screenplay or of production, mm-hmm. to have this message that's, that's meaningful and deeper. And, and you know, can you talk just a little bit about how that's accomplished in the context of this narrative structure? Yeah, well, I think there isn't like a formula and there isn't a clear way to do it. And I think that writers often mm-hmm. kind of feel like they have to figure it out for themselves. And to, I think a lot of them, just as with most screenwriting in general, um, you're kind of going with your gut and you're kind of mm-hmm. just doing what you think is good. And you're often pitching it to friends or collaborators or your manager or your agent and kind of seeing what they think and getting feedback. But you're not really, you know, using a playbook per se. And the one exception is there are kind of guidebooks of like creating a screenplay structure and so forth that are kind of widely used in Hollywood, like a three-act structure, beginning, middle, and end. But in terms of like figuring out how to put in something that might be, and again, I kind of say socially relevant, but you know, something that might be, um, you know, have some sort of importance, whether it is like a message about, you know, something about healthcare, something about the environment, something about politics. I think people are kind of winging it in terms of doing that. And uh, I found when I worked for, um, I wrote for this show called Class of 3000 on uh, Cartoon Network, we kind of wanted to make some jokes, but it was also a kid's show. And, like, we didn't want anything too heavy. And we also kind of felt like we have to kind of fit, like, this very light tone where, um, you know, it wasn't, like, appropriate to talk about lots of stuff. And sometimes also the network would give us notes saying, uh, don't make this joke <laughs> because uh, it's not funny to kids. You know, adult, it's, we have sometimes we have like kind of cynical jokes in there or something, and they would kind of say, you know, don't let's let's stay with just the fun, you know, light stuff for the kids and stuff. So, uh, yeah, people are kind of winging it as they as they do it. I think. As you're talking, the show I keep thinking about is The Simpsons, which is mm-hmm. so long lived, and and has at you know obviously you know, traffics in the absurd often, but also does have stories where they do, you know, go after sort of social issues. And there was one, I think it's My Pods and Broomsticks, where I think it's Bart makes friends with a young Muslim boy who moves into the neighborhood, right? And like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'm assuming the narrative is like, if someone like Bart can make friends with a Muslim kid, any of us could do it. Mm-hmm. Why do you think is it makes it possible for something like The Simpsons to be able to embed those messages? Is it just the the history of that? Or is there something about sort of the narrative structure that makes it more acceptable to audiences to have that stuff dropped in? That's a really good question. I think, well, first of all, The Simpsons is just brilliant. I, like, I grew up loving it. And they kind of really, I think, set the bar in terms of having really smart, kind of fun social satire or commentary mixed in with also really good storytelling, really good drama, um, some actual heart, and just so many jokes, just so many funny jokes. But yeah, I think that um, one reason they're able to do it is because I think part of the key is kind of hitting a tone with satire where you are able to kind of elevate and heighten reality and 
in a sense, The Simpsons, because it's animated and so forth, they have Homer doing things that are, you know, no human would actually do or survive, you know. Right. Um, and uh, they're able to kind of heighten and exaggerate it, and all the characters are kind of exaggerated. And because of that, I think they are able to sometimes put in some commentary. And then again, also, they kind of have no continuity in a sense that Springfield can literally get destroyed one episode or just, you know, kind of fall apart. And then the next episode just kind of restarts. And, you know, the kids are always in the same grade at school. And, you know, um, so they're able to kind of like show playfully – uh, playfully talk about issues, but I think the key thing is avoiding being preachy, and that's mm-hmm. really hard mm-hmm. to do. So that, and that I think is partly about the tone. It's about kind of making sure that the story comes first and the actual engagement with the characters comes first, as opposed to just feeling like you need to be lecturing someone about something that's important to you. And so no after-school special kind of language. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Ex- right. They're kind of sitting down, you know, and being like, okay, kids, we had a lot of fun today, but we really need to talk seriously about blah, 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 you know, or, you know, exactly. The kind of after-school special thing, I think people now are sophisticated. They don't, they recognize that for what it is, and they typically don't like it. You know, it, you, you, you loop back to one of the things I was about to say, which was that it, se- it seems like that, that, that the prerequisite is the effective storytelling. Mm-hmm. There has to be this story there that's, that, that's engaging and compelling and, sets, and is told in such a tone that, that you can be brought into this. Mm-hmm. You, you've mentioned The Simpsons is one kind of example where this has been effectively done. Mm-hmm. Are there some other examples that kind of stand out for you where, where this, the story and the message are both very strong? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. What what I find fascinating is there are a lot of failures, and I should have made a list before this, but there are a lot of projects. You're not talking about our episodes, are you? I mean, what are you? No. John, don't ask that question. Oh, I'm sorry. Comp- Everyone's compelling, but the uh, good no, man, slip yeah. him the five, will you? Exactly. Uh, thank you. Uh, but they, um, I think that there are there are good examples. But often I think also we kind of over, maybe over-exaggerate how much we expect like a one narrative can have an impact mm. in, the, in the age when audiences are just constantly watching streaming shows, mm. just mm. processing tons of narratives. And so the idea of like one quote-unquote very special episode, for example, of like <laughs> yeah. a sitcom or something like that, you know, actually teaching kids to like not do drugs because they saw one character like have a bad time on drugs in one episode of a TV show, it's like unlikely to have a permanent lasting effect. But I think that with... Um, yeah, sometimes it can be it can be effective. Examples that I've seen that I think people kind of worked with people. One is actually an episode of the show Thirty Rock, if you've ever seen it, which was about kind of it was by Tina Fey, and it kind of is about behind the scenes at a show that's kind of like Saturday Night Live, um, but it's kind of a fictional version of it. And they actually we we did a couple of experiments on it because we thought it was such an interesting piece of writing because NBC had what they call their green week of programming, which was basically they would have a week every year. um, And I don't know if they still do it, but they would basically say, we're going to make all our shows have an environmental theme this week, which the writers probably weren't thrilled about because the network's telling them what they have to write about that week. But they all did it. And 30 Rock did an episode, which was very funny, called Green Zoe, where they really did a very interesting job with it because what they did was they had a char- they had David Schwimmer guest star as a guy who's a struggling actor who gets cast as a mascot for uh, NBC Universal and they kind of make fun of the network themselves in the show and his name is Greenzo and he basically is like an environmentalist and so he goes around kind of criticizing people on the show for not being environmental, like leaving the lights on when they're not in the office or using styrofoam cups that aren't recyclable for their coffee and stuff. So he's actually saying like environmental things, but it's mixed into the story in kind of a fun way. 
And the story actually has fun with the idea that he becomes um, actually very full of himself. And instead of just the show saying, these are things you shouldn't do, it kind of starts there and then goes into a really interesting place where he starts thinking that he is like the savior of the environment and becomes like this crazy, like egomaniacal jerk and then eventually gets fired. And it turns into something where it's kind of making fun of environmentalists in a way, but not really, but also kind of saying in pro-environmental messaging. And we uh, did um, an experiment with that where we actually showed um, students that episode and we found that they had kind of conflicting interpretations of it, which is one thing that can happen, especially with satire. But I think it was effective for some people because they said, and we did some focus groups also to find out what they really thought of it and how they interpreted it. And we found they really thought, a lot of them thought that it was reminding them of good environmental behaviors but the show didn't feel preachy because it kind of made fun of its own. Mm. Uh, it came out kind of made fun of this idea of a network being preachy about the environment, which is ironically what exactly what NBC was doing. <laughs> but they uh, were making a profit off the show Thirty Rock, so they didn't really care if the show made fun of them at the network. So you know, everyone came out happy. But yeah, it's a very it's it can be effective, but it also can uh, if you're too subtle, people just come away with completely different impressions, and that's another thing we found there too. Yeah. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about the persuasive power of narrative with John Chernev. John, so you started talking a little bit about this one study on 30 Rock. You are a quantitative researcher who is studying narrative, right? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Uh, that's a, you're right. I, you have both pointed out some big foolish mistakes I've made <laughs> in my career choices here. Uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know why I left Hollywood. I don't know why I'm using quantitative methods to study storytelling. But, you know, it's... Um, I really, you know, I'm going to have to call uh, call my wife and think, rethink things a little bit after this. But um, hey, you just yeah. got tenure, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, yeah. no, you're not. You're not. You're good. No, you're you're right. good to yeah. go, pal. Yeah. Um, so no, but I think that what's uh, I'm kind of, first of all, I'm, I, I think of myself as methods agnostic, um, and I really try to do, I mean, we did focus groups on this 30 Rock episode, for example, right. and um, I did that um, on purpose because we did quantitative work on it first and found really kind of unusual results, but we were just kind of using just kind of, you know, a post-viewing kind of survey of like, what did you think of this, rate it one to five, mm-hmm. and so forth. And the numbers didn't really explain everything in that case, I thought, very well. So the, the focus group worked well with the quantitative But yeah, I think more broadly, just the question of quantitative work and narrative is relatively new. There's been kind of a surge in communication research in the last 20 years or so where people um, have found that stories can have persuasive effects as well as entertaining effects. And some psychologists and then a bunch of people in communication have really tried to kind of quantify that. But how to measure um, a story is almost an impossible question. And how to measure the effects of it is something that psychologists have done with various things. They just kind of ask you to kind of self-report how you did with things. But it's a whole, it's a big topic. But yeah, generally it's it's tricky. And um, I think we're still kind of figuring out a little bit as we go. Well, that's that's kind of exciting though. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. if, you're, if, it's, if it's early stages in mm-hmm. uh, the story, I, I find it, it really interesting that, that, you know, some of your work's appearing in communications research, but other in media psychology. And, mm-hmm. and you know, one of the, the, you were talking about the ways that you, some of the things that you measure, you talked about using surveys, you talked about kind of this, uh, you know, qualitative research paradigm, which I've, I've really come to, to very much appreciate over the course of my career, says the stat guy. But, <laughs> but, I, but I really right. do, because I think that there's sort of insights and into, uh, that you will have mm-hmm. from um, pursuing these different, this mixed methods strategy. So, so you studied 
identification and liking mm-hmm. in narratives. And you had s- these students that were having almost a continuous monitoring or recording of their reactions. Yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about, sort of set the stage for the experiment there? Yeah. And what, what is this, you know, so liking and identification is an aspect of, of a, an audience response to narrative. Yeah. So, so talk, can you say a little bit more about what motivated this and then how you, you dove in and studied it? Yeah, that, thank you. That's a great question. I think, so liking, one thing we found is that um, there are kind of psychologically, if you look at how people um, get engaged with a story, and that's kind of a broad term, getting engaged or really being into a story. Mm-hmm. There are a couple processes that psych- psychologically we've kind of separated, even though they overlap to some extent. Once One is called transportation or kind of just a sense of presence getting kind of sucked into the story mm-hmm. and almost losing track of what you were doing or the world around you and just really focusing on a story, whether it's a movie or a book or whatever. And that's kind of about being in a story. There's another process that's also been subjected to a lot of research lately called identification. And that, of course, is the idea of kind of empathizing with a character, seeing things through their point of view and kind of connecting more with a character, whereas transportation or presence is more about the story in general, just feeling like you're part of a story. And so one is more person or character focused, one's more kind of general to the story. But those are the two kind of big areas of research. And what some research has found is that identification with a character can have really strong effects. And um, kind of a meta a meta analysis of some work on these types of things found that identification led to some of the biggest impacts. And so I wanted to study what is causing people to either identify or not, because it really seems to, to affect whether they like the story, whether they care about what's happening, as well as whether they may then take the character's perspective. And, you know, especially in a persuasive kind of situation, maybe the character has a point of view that's different with what your point of view was when you started, let's say in a political context or something, and you actually maybe get some empathy for another person's experience. For example, seeing someone on screen who may be, you know, homosexual or um, dealing with a difficult family situation or something where you maybe never saw that side of an issue, you know. And so identification can be really important as well as just kind of liking a character. So we kind of started with that, and then I, I really wanted to look at kind of moving into a, a real kind of continuous response paradigm where people mm. are actually giving real-time data. Okay. So we basically set it up kind of like they're just turning a dial while they watch. Um, and so they watch a show, the computer's monitoring. They can, they can at any moment just kind of rate. It, it just kind of gave them a general question. How much do you like uh, the main character right now? And they could just move it anytime they wanted to from mm. zero to 100, and if they kind of didn't have a change. They could just keep it there, but they could move it whenever they wanted to kind of based on their own interpretations. And the per- first thing people say is like, well, isn't that going to distract them from the show to, to have to focus on this dial and think about how much do I like them? Well, maybe now it, I'm not even paying attention to the story. We found that people, if you do a little practice ahead of time, they get used to it and it's really not very hard actually. So we kind of did that. And we also asked other people how much they liked a character as instead of identifying with them, thinking of liking as being more like as a different person, you like that person as like a friend as opposed to feeling like you are them. And what's really interesting is that we found that um, story elements such as things that I've taken from screenwriting, such as the idea of setting up a character's goals in a story and their motivations for doing things, can be really important for increasing audience identification in those kind of key moments, as well as audience liking for a character. So we like a character when we know what they want, what they are about, and maybe what challenges they're facing. And that, more than other information, can really kind of get us absorbed into the character's shoes. 
So there's a long answer to a simple question. Oh, no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's simple it at all. Simple well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> as I, as you're talking it, it, in, and are talking about this particular experiment, it does sound like it highlights the importance of like clear writing, right? Like like you can't go don't approach the blank page lightly. Like you know you have to be really thoughtful. Have you talked to people who are actually still in the business about sort of the research you found? Like, because it does feel like it could translate, like someone who's writing the mm. next Star Wars film. Like, hey, these are the things we found if you don't want to ta- your fandom to hate you. Like, Yeah, well, I've been waiting for them to call. No one has yet. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. I really, I've chatted with some friends and stuff who are still in, in the business, but I think that it's something where I don't feel like I have a lot of the answers yet. It's so, it's a lot of this is really new stuff and people have not kind of looked at it quantitatively in these ways. And so I think that if someone were to say, John, how do I make people, let's say I want to have a narrative where I want people to um, learn about the importance of getting screened for mammograms or getting a mammogram for breast cancer, right? Which is actually something that people have tried to do in a story, try mm-hmm. to have a health message like that. And they say, how's the best way to integrate that into the story? I could give them maybe a couple pointers, but I don't really feel like I can say this will work, whereas this other option will definitely not work. And there's some things that we kind of have learned so far, but we're still figuring it out. So you're probably going to say, what things do work? (laughs) That's probably John's question. Right. Some of the things that do work are really kind of making sure it's, it's a little bit subtle, but also that people can understand the character and that they can kind of, again, identify with them. And we've also found that we actually did an experiment where we tried making something really, quote unquote, preachy, where it literally kind of slams Mm. you in the face with the message of what you kind of see what they want you to what the writers want you to do. And, for example, back going back to like the NBC and their Green Week idea, they actually would have PSAs also in the commercial breaks in between the episodes of their uh, green-themed programming. And the PSAs would be like NBC actors being like, you know, think about the environment, don't forget to do this, and stuff. And so we actually did an experiment where we showed some people episodes where the PSAs were in the commercial breaks and other people where the PSAs were taken out and it was just regular commercial breaks. And the PSAs actually, on top of a show that was already about environmental messaging and stuff, they kind of got people annoyed. And Mm -hmm. actually, for people who were not big environmentalists, they actually kind of, it backfired a little bit. They Mm -hmm. actually kind of Mm -hmm. got a little bit annoyed and just felt like it was very kind of telling them what to do or preachy. And they had something called psychological reactance, which is basically a, a fancy word for what a teenage, a petulant teenager does, which is basically the opposite of what you're, whatever you ask them yeah, to do. Yeah. So, you know, you say, uh, you know, recycle your styrofoam cups and they're going to throw them in the trash on purpose just to make you angry, you know. Yeah, it seems like yeah, don't insult your audience is a big part of the story here, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah. one of the things that I, I found myself wondering is, you know, so so you do these experiments. Now all of a sudden are you going to be kind of like this, um, you know, Dr. Frankenstein building scripts based on experiments that you're doing with captive audiences that, that mm-hmm. oh wait I've done this look look what's happened I mean could could you envision some future where where these types of experimental insights into to well liking or identification might actually be then implemented in the course of, of a story being built right and then would that be used for good or evil you know I mean yeah. could it be used yeah. by someone who has a very specific political political agenda to manipulate audiences into that point of view and the answer my answers to that are, one, people are already trying to do that, whether we like it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are lots of movies, especially kind of documentaries, but also they use narratives within them, trying to get people to have a very specific point of view, whether it's Michael Moore on the left or a bunch of conservative filmmakers on the right or other people in general. But the second question is, I think that do we actually see a way to like prescribe exactly what to do? Um, and I think that is never going to be 
perfectly understood quantitatively. And some people in the humanities probably already think the idea of studying the effects of narratives with numbers is just a fool's errand. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of agree to the extent that we're not going to be able to quantify why one thing really hits an audience necessarily better than another. That's what studios spend tons of money and time developing and trying to find out. And they do focus groups, they do pilot testing, they do you know, all this stuff, and they, they don't have a great answer, obviously, based on the fact that lots of movies and TV shows fail. So I think we're not going to have a perfect answer, and I think that's okay. But I view what we do as kind of looking for patterns in, in human behavior, which is kind of the social mm-hmm. scientific point of view, and saying if there is a pattern and it can be measured, so people, for example, all seem to like this one type of story, then there is something maybe worthwhile studying there, though it may not necessarily predict exactly how all people will respond in all circumstances. In the last couple of minutes, I'm going to ask you, John, you are someone who researches entertainment. Mm-hmm. What what media do you consume that you enjoy for entertainment purposes that you would never research? Like, how do you, because I always, uh, that's what yeah. I do, because I also research, you know, pop media, and I try to separate the pleasure consumption from the study consumption. So I am curious, mm-hmm. like, what do you cordon off from, from the studies that you hold to yourself for fun? Um, well, yeah, okay. So first of all, my research does ruin some things for me um, because I Interesting. I do watch, I tend to, if I hear that something is has kind of like an environmental theme or a political theme, I'll tend to watch it more than I would necessarily otherwise. And I'm kind of like always analyzing it. Um, but I would say one thing, my guilty pleasure is usually just action movies. Like I'm excited to see the new John Wick movie. They're paying me to plug it. Um, <laughs> but, no. but I mean... People actually do research action movies and, like, does the violence lead to children being more violent and stuff, which has not really been, I don't think, shown conclusively. But I don't want to study that. I just love it. I love a good Marvel comic book movie. I just, uh, you know, I kind of want to have fun with those and then not worry always about entertainment trying to necessarily give us Mm -hmm. an important lesson about society. I, I, so, Rosemary, what is yours? I got um, Oh, that's a good question. I mean, right now I'm watching a lot of uh, uh, Mando, like Mandalorian, and mm-hmm. we just finished Last of Us, and I will soon be starting Ted Lasso. Oh. So things that connect not at all to Muslim representation, which is what I generally study. <laughs> I will say I am wearing a Bruce Lee t-shirt right now, and we used to watch Bruce Lee films when I was a kid, and my dad, during commercial breaks when they were on TV, would be like, okay, guys, now you can fight, and then we would try to reenact what we saw on the films. So just speaking to John's point, it might not like long-term make you violent, but it might sort of jazz you a little bit uh, true. to make you ready to punch. Right. So then, it's like, then your dad is actually reinforcing the yeah. message. Yeah. Right. You know, so that would be a whole interesting study. So, so right. my, my grandfather, I talked to him in the taking me to see Enter the Dragon, at the at the, the you know at the theater which which I thought just showed you how much he he loved me as a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> he would do that, but it, it was brilliant. I, I you know as we start as we're sort of sneaking in on on landing this plane you know and, uh, the the question that I have is you were you're talking about media multitasking as one of your areas of interest. Mm-hmm. I, I when I heard that as part of kind of what you do or what you're interested in, I you know you're talking to someone who used to have headphones on reading a book watching TV when I was a kid, and I still have trouble doing anything without multi, you know bringing in multiple input sources. So tell me, what do you, when you're talking about study media multitasking, what does that even mean? Yeah, well, that's, okay, that's a big question. I actually was asked to write like a book chapter about kind of what does the concept mean? And a lot of it was, uh, I spent a lot of time trying to think about that. And we, 
Um, we use it differently as researchers, but it's, I would say it's not directly connected to this other stuff as much, except for just the idea of, are we paying attention to stories when we watch them even, uh, which is a big question because people are often doing other things, texting on their phone while they're watching something on TV, maybe only kind of nominally listening to what's happening. But the idea of media multitasking, so here's a fancy definition, is basically the idea of using at least one media-based uh, technology while doing at least one other task-driven activity as well, which could also be media or not. Okay. So if you're doing laundry while listening to a podcast, that would be media multitasking because you've got a podcast on. If you are just doing two, you can also multitask in the real world without any media. Like you can be talking to your friend at, that you're out at lunch with, but then also get you know interrupted and try to do something else, or you could be taking a walk and talking to someone. But basically media multitasking means involving at least one mediated activity and then kind of the really big finding is just that we are terrible multitaskers. Yeah, yeah. Humans don't really have brains that work in multiple things at once. We really are just task switching back and forth. Yeah. And every time we switch, even if it's rapidly, we lose a little bit of like our place of what we are doing and have to kind of reboot that. And so just the more distracted we are, the worse we are at everything, but the more satisfied we feel because we feel really busy <laughs> and really productive. And so, you know, I think that's something I try to apply to myself, though I'm always getting distracted, but I try to like actually, you know, turn off my phone or mute it when I'm trying to sit down and write a paper or something for a little bit because um, it just makes us a little bit dumber at everything and we think we're getting smarter by multitasking. <laughs> well, John, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here Thanks, today. John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.